Would you pray with me, please? Living God, would you open our hearts and open our minds to your word today? Help us to receive not only what you have to say, but then to have the courage to obey. Lord, help us to know deep in our bones that you have life in store for us, that you have our best in store for us. Help us to be full of joy and full of life. Amen. It's my conviction that there are two types of people in the world, those who love roller coasters and those who do not. I happen to love roller coasters. Now, some people think roller coasters are for adrenaline junkies or for people who have some screws loose in their psyche. And I'm not ruling that out, but that's not the reason that I like roller coasters. The reason that I can actually enjoy the speed and the sharp turns and the unpredictable thrills of a new roller coaster is because I know deep down it's all going to be okay. I know that thousands of hours of engineering have gone into the design and testing of major theme park rides. I know that the intent of the ride is to thrill me, not to kill me. And I know that there is intense pressure for the theme park to provide a safe and exciting experience. Ultimately, I know that from the conceptual uh, blueprint stage into the final experience, roller coasters are designed to do right by the customer. Now, if that weren't the case, it would be absolutely horrifying to strap yourself into this tin can on a rail and just hope it worked out for the best. We live in a world that often seems like we're strapping ourselves in and just hoping for the best. So much seems uncertain. There's so much we can't control in the world, and life can seem terrifying. But the message of Scripture is that from the very beginning of time, to the very end, God is in control. And through the ups and downs and twists and turns, we can resonate with the great hymn and declare, through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that's brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We've been on a journey together, you and I, through the book of Acts over the last couple of years. We've covered a lot of ground. And in some passages, we've gone deep and explored the nuances of every word and every sentence. But sometimes it's important to pull back and remember the big picture. So as we re-engage with the story where we left off from last week, let's remember that this whole book, the whole saga of the early church from Pentecost to Paul's trip to Rome, is intended to show us that God is sovereign over all of it. It's the Spirit of God who's the main actor. And no matter what the dangers, toils, and snares that the characters encounter along the way, we can be sure that Jesus is on the move and is very much in control of the situation. Today we're going to cover the story you just heard in the scripture reading, Acts 16, 6-19. And it breaks up nicely into three literary sections. Each section, or each act, shows God's sovereignty and his salvation. There's a lot of weird place names that seem pretty foreign to most of us, so in order to help us get the big picture, let's take a look at a couple maps to situate ourselves in the story. Here's a map of the Mediterranean with modern political boundaries. You'll recognize the familiar boot of Italy to the left, Eastern Europe up above, 
Iraq over on the right, kind of peeking at us from the right side, and Egypt, or at least the top of it, down at the bottom and near the middle. As we focus on the areas pertaining to our story, we'll mostly be in modern-day Turkey and Greece. So with these modern boundaries in mind, let's look at the map as it would have been in Paul's day, with regions divided up in Roman reckoning. First, notice that Asia on this map is really just the western part of modern-day Turkey. And notice also that Macedonia is distinctly different from the rest of Greece. So if you look at the far right side, find Antioch. That's where Paul and Barnabas split up after an embarrassing argument over whether or not to take John Mark as a traveling companion. As it turns out, Barnabas and Mark traveled via ship to the island of Cyprus to encourage the churches there, while Paul and Silas headed overland and ended up in Lystra. There they met Timothy and set out on a missionary journey toward the west. In this first act of today's story, they were apparently intending to go to Asia, to cities like Ephesus or Colossae or Sardis or Laodicea, and for whatever reason, the Spirit prevented them from going on that route. Now, some people speculate that Paul wasn't ready for the sophisticated arguments that he would encounter in some of these cities. Take Ephesus, for example. At that time, in Paul's day and age, Ephesus was one of the centers of world power, intellectual thought, and centers of trade with all kinds of influences from around the world. Some speculate that Jesus had Paul cut his teeth first in Macedonia and then test the waters in Athens, and then after more maturing of his faith and developing a better rhetorical style, bringing him to Asia where he could actually make a difference and spread the gospel in that sophisticated place. We really don't know. But what we do know is that Paul received a vision from a man in Macedonia who was saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Ultimately, God's guidance was for salvation. Salvation for the Macedonians, salvation of Lydia, salvation of a slave girl, and salvation for countless other people who would experience the good news through the life and ministry of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Act 1 is all about guidance from the Spirit. We don't know exactly how the Spirit impressed upon Paul that he was not to go here and not to go there, but that he was you know, supposed to go where he was supposed to go. We know from Paul's writings that he was committed to studying the Scriptures and to prayer and to walking in Christian community. And sometimes God does surprise us with special one-off events like a daydream or a vision like the guy from Macedonia. But most often, he speaks through the tried and tested avenues of the spiritual practices. All throughout Acts, we've seen God speak and guide and reveal himself to people who are already praying, already serving, already worshiping, or already fasting. When they meet Lydia, she's at a prayer meeting, and she's listening to, to Paul preach. And knowing Paul, he's preaching about the gospel. Whether you're facing an important decision right now and could really use some guidance, or maybe you just want to be more connected to God, I encourage you to pause the video or podcast and consider the following questions. Keep in mind now that these questions are not designed to shame you or to get you to do more Christian stuff. Think of it this way. The God of all creation wants to speak to you, wants to guide you in your life.
And if that's something you could use more of, we'll consider these questions. How are you putting yourself in the stream of God's revelation, in the places where he normally shows up? Number two, if you're trying to get through life without a regular practice of meditating on scripture or listening prayer or prayerful interaction with the Christian community, how might you take one step in the right direction this week? As we enter into Act 2 of the story, Paul and his crew are now in Philippi, which is in ancient Macedonia. The Jewish community there is apparently so small that there's no synagogue, but there is a prayer gathering down by the river. Knowing Paul, they were speaking about Jesus at this prayer meeting, and this woman named Lydia, a non-Jewish lady, but she was a God-fearer, a person who was interested in the Hebrew Scriptures and in worshiping God, she had her heart opened by Jesus to respond to the gospel message. Now, Lydia is an interesting character. She is not the typical woman of the ancient world. She's mentioned by name without any reference to her husband, and yet it says she has a household or a family. She could have been divorced or widowed, or her household that's mentioned in Scripture could simply be her and her servants and maybe some extended family. In Macedonia, women had more rights and ability to work in the marketplace, much more opportunity than they would in Palestine or in Greece, for example. So what we do know is that Lydia was wealthy. She had status. She was a seller of purple cloth. And in those days, the dyes to make purple textiles were extremely expensive. They were made by the crushing of just a few different types of snails, such as the Myrix brandaris, shown here. Estimates suggest that it would take nearly 10,000 snails to produce just a small amount of dye. So needless to say, it was extremely expensive, and only the very wealthy elites of society could afford it. Being a seller of these expensive textiles, Lydia would not only be financially well-off, but she would also cross paths with the wealthy and influential. She would roll in circles that the vast majority of the population just couldn't have access to. And this is an important reminder because we so often deal with wealth and power in the Bible as a force that can corrupt a person, and it certainly can. Jesus warns about the power of wealth all the time. And yet, in the service of Jesus, wealth and influence can be used to bless others. Wealth is not anti-gospel. What's anti-gospel is injustice and greed and overindulgence. So Lydia's life is transformed by the gospel. Like the women who supported the ministry of Jesus in the gospels, or the wealthy who had large enough homes to house the church in Acts chapter 2, or Barnabas who sold land to support the mission of the church, so Lydia joins the company of disciples who used their wealth to show hospitality and to further ministry and to support the church. In fact, take a moment to consider these two questions if you want to dig in a little deeper. How have you been blessed by a Lydia in your life? Is there a sister or a brother in Christ who has shared their abundance or finances or influence to meet a need in your life? Second, how could you be a Lydia? Not many of us have exceptional wealth or cultural influence, but we all have something to offer. 
After all, we serve a God who turns five loaves and two fishes into more than enough to feed a crowd. How might you be an encouragement to someone by offering a bit of yourselves, your talents, or your unique gifts? So in Act 1, we saw God's act of salvation in sending the bearers of good news to a land in desperate need of it, to a couple of women whose lives were forever changed by Jesus. And what must have seemed confusing and frustrating to Paul and his friends at the time was revealed to be God at work. In Act 2, we saw salvation come specifically to Lydia. She was a woman with abundance of the things of the world. And after her encounter with Jesus, she came to employ her abundance in the ministry of the gospel. In Act 3, we encounter another woman from a very different social status. Once again, they're on their way to prayer when they meet this new character. They're putting themselves in the mainstream of the way that God normally speaks and normally acts. Okay, anyway, this girl, we learn that she's a slave girl and that she's possessed by a spirit. Literally, in Greek, she's possessed by a pneuma puthona. That means the spirit of a python. Now, think back to your literature days, maybe in 8th or ninth grade, you've probably heard of the Oracle of Delphi. It's one of the most famous in the writings of the Greek poets. In Homeric hymns, for example, there's the story of a massive python guarding the Oracle of Delphi. And Apollo comes and slays this monster python since he is the god of oracles, among many other things. And legend has it that from time to time, the spirit of the python it was believed, would possess people and give them power to tell the future or to reveal things that were hidden, but in return it would also take away their humanity and their freedom. It would possess them. Now, there are far too many examples of possession and the supernatural to dismiss this story completely out of hand. And if you're interested in more reading about this, I would recommend to read the works of Edith Turner, who is a skeptical humanist and an anthropologist who came to terms with the spirit world after sustained interactions with a tribe in Zambia, completely changed her worldview. Anyway, here's this woman who's taken over by a spirit. She's in bondage to it. And rather than help her, slavers come and then use her to make money for themselves. And when she encounters the disciples, she cries out, These men are bondservants, literally slaves, of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you not the way of salvation, but a way of salvation. Okay, three things I want to point out quickly. First, she is a slave to an evil spirit, and she is a slave to evil men. And she rightly points out that Paul and his friends are slaves or bondservants of Jesus. Everyone serves a master. Second, in Philippi, when someone said, the Most High God did this or that or is saying this or that, they didn't mean Yahweh. And they definitely didn't mean Jesus. They meant Zeus or Jupiter, the highest of the pantheon of pagan gods and goddesses. So what she's doing by taking the message of the gospel of Jesus and saying that the heralds, Paul and Silas and Timothy, are proclaiming salvation by the Most High God, she's mislabeling them and confusing people. She's pointing the people 
to Zeus rather than to Jesus, see? And third, she's saying that they were proclaiming a way of salvation, not the way of salvation. She's relativizing their message. The spirit in the girl was trying to take away the particularity of Jesus and to get in on the bandwagon because whoever went after Paul as he was preaching, it could be said that the python or the oracle led them there. Now, the last thing you want to do, if you're a foreigner in a Roman province, proclaiming the supremacy of a Palestinian king other than Caesar is make an uproar. Right? So days go by, and Paul isn't particularly moved to address this slave girl. Many English translations say that Paul was annoyed with her when he finally does cast the demon out, which sort of implies that Paul didn't really care about this girl's well-being, but because he finally got annoyed, he cast the demon out. But that's not at all how it's described in the Greek language. Paul isn't annoyed. He's deeply grieved. He was moved, in other words, in his innermost being. He'd been trying to fly under the radar, but being moved in his spirit, he commands the spirit in the girl, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And she was set free. Her masters cared more for their prophets than her life, and they were furious at Paul and his friends, and so so much for flying under the radar. They were in big trouble. And we're going to get to the consequences uh, for Paul and his friends the next time we visit this passage in a couple weeks. But as we bring Act 3 to a close, let's not lose sight of this gracious act of salvation. The gospel of Jesus is not just a message of forgiveness and future security. It's a message of the good news to the poor and release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed, and the favorable year of the Lord. And just to drive it home, I'm quoting Jesus. You know him. I'll leave us with two parting questions to consider. What do you make of spiritual bondage? Is there room in your worldview to consider the unseen world and malevolent forces that might seek to do harm? And is there an area in which you need deep inner healing? Second, how might our thirst for pleasure, privilege, convenience, or power come at the expense of other people? How might your choices help keep others in a place of exploitation or suppression?